Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are on this fine day. My name's Ali Amagasu, and I'm welcoming you to the latest episode of the Cloud Unfiltered podcast. Here on Cloud Unfiltered, we have been neglecting the topic of big data, but we are remedying that situation today. We've got a really cool guest on. He's been an analyst for Forrester Research before. Right now, he is a data, a big data strategist for Oracle. His name's Paul Sonderegger. I hope I pronounced that right. Did I, Paul? You got it. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. And as always, I am with my co-host, Pete Johnson. Hey, Pete. Hey, Allie. I'm back in the uh, underground nerd lair in the middle of nowhere, Michigan. Looking forward to this conversation about big data. Excellent. Yes, I can see that you're back in the nerd lair. Uh, why were you demoted back there? What, ha what happened? Well, you know, family circumstance. My family is not on the road because it's, it's college audition season at my household, and that is largely over. And my, my daughter was very happy that I – give me a bad time that I turned 50 yesterday, which I am not happy about at all. But <laughs> that, we could talk about that for the whole 30 minutes, so I, I digress. Okay, first half, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you very and much. And second, now I find all the times you reference yourself as old profoundly offensive because I, too, am 50. <laughs> you always have your stories where you're talking about back in the day when I was yeah, writing code I know. I know. on paper. <laughs> that I implies know. Well, I don't like it. Well, I don't, I don't either. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. Oh, well, it's all, it's all relative. 50 is the new 30. I mean, you know, if we were back in the 1300s, uh, we'd all be dead. We would. Absolutely. <laughs> Good point. Absolutely. Can't argue with that. <laughs> Well, Paul, thank you for indulging our mindless chit-chat. The reason we wanted to talk with you today is you've got some interesting things to say about big data. And as I said, we neglect that, that topic a bit. But uh, what I think is interesting is I've, I've looked recently at a blog post you, you wrote, and I've seen a video that you've produced about the hidden data economy. So before we get into what to do about big data, tell what is the hidden data economy? Sure, sure. Well, one of the things that's going on with data is that it has lost, you know, most of its modifiers, big, fast, and it has become just data. Um, this is one of the hallmarks of a thing going mainstream, of just sort of becoming totally normalized. And that's what has happened with data. And the reason is that behind all the talk about digitization and datification and stuff like that is this economic reality, this reality that data is a kind of capital. And, you know, and this is not a metaphor. It's not like data's the new oil or the ele or electricity or gold. This is the literal textbook, economic textbook definition of capital, that capital is a produced good as opposed to a natural resource. So you have to invest to create it. It's not something you can dig up. But more importantly, capital is a necessary input into some other good or service. It's what economists call an economic factor of production for that good or service. Data fulfills all of these requirements. It is a kind of capital. And, you know, I mean, just to give you a quick example, like if you design, say, a skyscraper, but you lack the financial capital to build it, well, then you can't have that skyscraper. Uh, right, you just have a pretty design. Exactly. You just have a great blueprint, but you're like, well, we, we lack one of the critical economic factors to make this thing the money to pay for it. Same By the same token, if you create some kind of like differential pricing algorithm, but you lack the data to feed that AI, 
you can't deliver that service. Data is an economic factor of production in digital goods and services. So this has all kinds of interesting implications. And one of them is that the value creation that comes from data, it only comes from using the stuff. You know, data doesn't have any value until you actually use it for something. So you create it and then it's just generating costs. And it's not until you use it that it actually creates value or has any kind of measurable value. And most of that activity happens inside uh, an enterprise's four walls. Most of the value created from data in the data economy happens within the same four walls of that company that created the data. So what data do you mean by that? Well, so the, the most data never goes to market. Most data that gets created never goes to market. Now, we know some of it does. We know that some data gets bought and sold, and there are these really critical security and privacy implications that, that need to be honored there in order for the rights of the observed over observations about them to be respected. However, most data doesn't actually get sold as a data product. Most of the data that gets created gets used by the same company that created it. So, you know, you think about say like uh, Google AdWords, for example. So they're not selling the data that they capture about our clicks and what we actually look at online uh, from the search results. They rather, they use that data that they create in order to sell targeted ad space. This is the same for like most manufacturers that are instrumenting all of their um, production lines with smart sensors and uh, seismic detectors. They don't sell that data. They create that data and then they use it for their own purposes. And this means that the lion's share of value creation from data in the data economy is actually happening inside of these companies. And it is a data economy that is hiding in plain sight. Each one of these large enterprises is sitting on a hidden data economy. So you're saying that most, most enterprises don't realize that they have this. That's right. Most of them don't. Most of them don't. Because most companies, they think of their data in terms of storage and processing. You know, how much of it do we need to keep? And then uh, what's or what kind of capacity do we need in order to process it? They may think of it in terms of, of, well, okay, what data are we getting from this application? You know, this application is generating these records. What analytics do we want to build on that data? They may think of it in those terms. But what they don't do what most companies do not do is think of their data in terms of supply and demand. And that's really what they've got. So, I mean, if you're running a large enterprise, you know, some big telecom company or, or, or even, or frankly, even just a, you know, a smaller organization, a mid-sized manufacturer of, of paper goods, you have got a supply of data coming in. This is data created by applications, sensors, devices, and that supply is not only growing, but it's also diversifying. It gets created in a whole new variety of formats. And even within formats, within a given format like JSON, you've got all of these different models. Then you have got the demand side. And the demand side is in analytics and AIs especially, but also applications, because applications are also you know, reading that data and doing something with it. But that's the demand side, um, largely focused on analytics and AIs. That is also growing 
because the number of analytics and AIs these data have to feed is is growing and it's diversifying all of those models they keep coming up with their they keep you know coming into being in different shapes and sizes this is a very complex and rich economy but most companies don't think of it that way they don't think of their data in terms of supply and demand and they should yeah, you know, when I when I saw that part in the video, the hidden data economy video, and and I advise everybody go. It's it's not long. I think it's like four minutes long. So it's but it's got some really interesting concepts in it. Right. The thing that struck me about that when you discussed supply of demand of data versus storage, reminded me of the Coca Cola company in a very weird way. So like in the late '80s and the early '90s, Coke stopped looking at their business in terms of market share relative to Pepsi and instead changed the metric they used to determine success, where if you count up the number of people on the planet and the amount of liquid they consume on a daily basis, what percentage of stomach volume do we have as a company is the way that Coke started to think about this. And that led to branching out into, you know, waters and different kinds of beverages and you know, for better or for worse, having a Coke machine every 20 feet in any major metropolitan area and, and those sorts of things. So like when, when you started thinking, I mean, storage, you know, how many gigabytes, how many terabytes, how many petabytes? Inevitably, storage always leads to, well, how much of it is there as opposed to this supply and demand kind of idea. And, and then so then the next thing that you leverage off of that in the video is to talk about these three facets that you called liquidity, productivity, and security. So can you fill those out a little bit more? And if, if you are ready to think about your data in terms of supply and demand, what do these three axes of, of thinking about your data, where does that lead you? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So if you've got this hidden data economy, if it's hidden, it's probably not as productive as it should be. And so you need to bring it into the light in order to increase your returns on data capital. So how do you do that? And there really, there are three areas that, that you should focus on data liquidity, data productivity, data security. And you know that first one, I think is the one that, that needs a little, needs the most explication. But this idea of data liquidity, this is the ability to get data from its point of origin to its many points of use efficiently. And what companies need to do is reduce the time, the cost, the effort to get data from this point of origin, you know, this point of creation to all of the analytics and AIs that could potentially create value from it. Well, this turns out to be a little difficult because the way that data gets created, you know, on the supply side, as we talked about, it's in this huge diversity of formats, diversity of models. In addition, hardly any of that stuff is in the right combination or model that you, that your analytics and AIs prefer, you know, that your analytics and AIs want in order to, in order to chew on that. So um, there are a couple of ways to address this. And one, one of the ways that, that Oracle thinks is really important is to create multiple access methods to a single data representation. And so this is, you know, something you may hear Oracle talk about with the autonomous database. And if, you, if you're not familiar with the autonomous database, this is a database service. It's the Oracle database available as a service from the Oracle cloud, and it tunes itself, it secures itself, it repairs itself. So it's got a whole bunch of embedded AI that's just watching its own performance, and then uh, as well as the infrastructure that it runs on and keeping it all happy and healthy and really fast. 
But the other aspect of that database service is that the database of the core is what we call a converged database. And the, the essence of that idea is that it's multi-model, it's multi-workload, it's multi-tenant. And the connection here to data liquidity is that when you've got this converged database, you essentially have a single engine with multiple APIs, multiple methods of access. And so you could create some you know, microservice that is basically handling interactions with a mobile app. And it's just doing puts and gets on JSON docs. Create that as a collection in the autonomous database. And then when you realize, oh, wait a minute, we actually want to do some analytics on that in order to understand what's going on with these interactions. Well, then you just use SQL access to that exact same collection. And the engine itself, the Oracle Autonomous Database, it does all the work of taking those JSON uh, files, representing them as if they were relational tables from the very beginning so that your SQL statement now makes sense and you get full-on SQL access on top of this same JSON collection that you're doing all of your puts and gets on. And this is pretty nifty because you know development teams, they get what they want. They, they're able to act as if they've just got you know, this single purpose engine um, that they need for their particular service. But then other departments in the organization, like some kind of analytics team or data science team, they're now able to get access to that data as if it were born in a model that is more favorable to the work that they want to do. Does the engine does the engine go as far as I mean clearly you'd be able to get metrics off of which aspects method is being used and be able to make some determinations about the usefulness of the data from that perspective. But do you go to the extent of then evaluating the source? Does that start to get into productivity? Or, or is that is that something else there? Yeah, so the way that we think about the productivity is first and foremost, in terms of feeding data into little AIs that are embedded in business applications. So, you know, these, these you know, Oracle has an entire suite of cloud apps. And for a lot of organizations, their business processes, their hiring practices, their promotion practices, their assessment of creditworthiness for new suppliers is embodied in those applications. And so a big way to improve the productivity of data, you know, to increase the dollar output per data input mm -hmm. um, is to feed data into embedded AIs in those different business processes in order to incrementally reduce costs, incrementally increase revenue, um, as the case may be. So that's one of the ways that we think about increasing data productivity. But what this points to is the thing that you just asked about, which is, wouldn't it be great if companies could measure how much of their data under management is actually getting used? Wouldn't it be useful if you could measure, okay, of all the records that we've got, and you and you know writ large, you know some of them are actual. Some of you know it could be relational, it could be graph, it could be sure. Yeah. Um, but you could ask, but you could answer the question: How many of these things actually get touched by the analytical queries? Uh, that well, and at, and how much of it relates to revenue, right? You could right. Uh, some of them you could put a dollar value on it, e right. even if it's you know a hundredth of a tenth of a percent, uh, you know of a cent, you know for every you know if I use a Cisco analogy, right, like. For, for every GPS coordinate 
within a building that DNA Spaces is collecting about where people are moving around an office building, how does that translate to worker productivity and ultimately to what my expenses are? Like you could, in theory, you could you could draw that analogy if you set up if you set up the AI and the formulas enough. That's that's exactly right. And so, and it's going to take some time to get there. But this is one of the this is one of the things that we're thinking about as as we talk with enterprises and they're asking the question, well, <laughs> how can we create more value from data? But also, how do we know if we're doing it or not? Right. We like we know when we create a bunch of data. We know when we create, you know, new analytics. But how do we know if it's benefiting us or not? And yeah, so companies need new ways to measure how much of their data is actually getting used. What is the contribution that use makes to the cost reduction or the revenue generation of that department? And here is where you you actually cross this boundary now. You're now not you're now measuring not just stuff that's happening in this infrastructure. Now you have to also uh, take in measurements about what's going on in that department. Yeah, the business and transactions. Exactly, exactly, and 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 also, exactly the 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 transactions that may be happening in that department, but also just the activity. I mean, imagine if you wanted to say, all right. Well, what is the what's what's the incremental value we would get from injecting a new data set into the hiring process for our call centers, let's say. Right. You know, call centers are big, got lots of people in there, you got lots of employee churn. And so, well, if you could experiment and say, all right, we're going to we've got this new data set that comes from some new survey that we're using in the hiring process. We're going to inject that in an experiment here, and then you actually see a reduction or maybe an increase in the length of time it takes to sign people. Well, then you could uh, kind of back into, all right, well, what portion of our costs, our hiring costs, did that use of data right. affect? So you could do, you should essentially do some A-B testing with a data set, reintroducing it into, introducing a new data set into some business process, whether it's the hiring process that you just mentioned or, you know, one of the things that's, that, that's big at Cisco events these days is using things like Meraki cameras to monitor traffic flow through retail spaces, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I put, if I put a shelf, you know, here in the middle of an aisle versus if I stagger the aisle, like... If I do those kinds of things, what kind of changes does it have? And it's, I love that idea of, of taking this, this AB kind of thing that we've had in UIs forever and, and putting that into, injecting that into, into either business processes or in this case that I brought right. up, this, into physical spaces. Well, and this kind of gets us into the, the, the third big idea, this data security bit, because, this, because security now is not just about protecting the data. It's right. also about protecting the observed Right. And so, you know, and you're seeing with like GDPR and California's kind of echo of that, the CCPA, you see the, this inauguration of rights for the observed over observations about them that sometimes may conflict with the rights of the observer. So one of the really interesting ones here is the, the, the right to deletion in GDPR. Um, like, okay, so customer calls up and says, I want you to delete all my data. All right, well, that's, that's, if one person does it, that's one thing. But if a particular group of people were, you know, if all of Colbert Nation, when the, that was still a thing, 
you know, said, all right, well, we, uh, you know, we, we, the European subsection of Gold Bear Nation, we're going to call up, let's say, insurers and demand that our data be deleted. Well, one of the implications for that is that all of a sudden, uh, any analyses that may have been done on the database with those records may now have a systematic bias. Right. And this can create a new set of legal challenges. And so um, this world of data security now has, has to recognize both protections uh, for the observer who controls and processes the information, but also for the observed so that their rights will be honored. And this is a new era of um, uh, certainly overlap and sometimes conflict um, for stakeholders over the same data sets. Uh, and, and this is, there's actually, there's going to be a lot of experimentation and, and innovation in this area uh, in order to provide more visibility uh, into what kinds of protection for multiple stakeholders enterprises offer on their data sets uh, as they get used in all of these analytics and AIs. So we've up until this point, we've been talking about kind of high level concepts. Let's let's bring this down to to some more specifics, because you did a, a write up on a panel that took place at Oracle World Europe recently. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the one anecdote from that panel that really resonated with me was with a company called Haldis. I think mm -hmm. how you pronounce that. That's right. T talk about that use case and, and how you get to some of these 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 concepts that we've been talking about in this specific use case to ultimately being able to determine when someone maybe is using your product in a way that you did not, you, you know, you did not license them to use your product. Sure. So uh, how this is an interesting case, how this is a high end property manager. So, you know, for short term stays, but it's at carefully selected properties in a number of cities in Italy and Brussels and Paris. And so, you know, they, they face a new threat from Airbnb which you know, is, is, uh, operates on a massive scale, much larger than Haldis does. So Haldis can't compete on uh, scope and reach, but they choose to compete on, competitive, on uh, customer experience. Uh, and, uh, and they really have two kinds of customers. One is the property owner, because Haldis is doing this property management for them. And the other is the people who stay, you know, travelers. Because, of course, Haldis wants these travelers to come back to Haldis managed properties. And so uh, data is the key to providing better service sure. to both of, these, both of these groups. And, you know, one of the ways that you see this is in recommendations that Haldis is able to make to travelers, you know, as based on past activities, you know, when they come to a new city. Which you know certainly makes sense, but one of the other things that's kind of interesting is that they are capturing telemetry data from some of these properties, and this includes things like monitoring the temperature in the in the property. And so one thing that Haldis can do is bump up the temperature on an unseasonably cold, damp day in Venice, you know, in in uh, uh, an apartment where someone is staying. But one of the other things they can do is automatically detect, say, unusual spikes in temperature late in the evening, which may indicate that there are many more people in that apartment than expected, which may be a party. And so this now is a service that is provided to the property manager. Now, the interesting thing about this one is that it walks this balance between privacy and, and risk management. 
as a party goer, am I giving them permission to take my body temperature's contribution to the overall interior temperature of that unit in a place where a party should not be taking place? That's yeah, and it, and so it's this very fine balance. I mean, that is uh, the the aggregate temperature is is obviously not personally identifiable since it's an aggregate, and and yet it is something that is very closely tied to that property. So this is kind of this is one of these these balancing acts. What I think is is really interesting there is my suspicion is that many people listening right now would say, well, we're not a company with the kind of data. We're not a company that could really exploit big data. It's it's not we don't we're not sitting on that on that that hidden economy that Paul is referring to. But this reference, I mean, suggests that everyone is because if this small you know property management company is leveraging data in such a creative way in a way that's really beneficial to them, it suggests that everyone is. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and this actually touches on one of the things that's kind of odd about data as an economic asset. And that is that data is non-fungible. So what that means is that you cannot substitute one data set for another because they carry different signal. They have different information. And um, some people will say, well, data is a commodity. You know, there's so much of it. It's been totally commodified. And this completely misses the point. Yes, there is a lot more digital data captured now than there used to be. But no, you cannot just substitute one data set for another because they contain different observations, totally different signal. They are non-fungible. And this is totally different from commodities like oil where you really don't care whether you get barrel A or barrel B. They contain the same amount of energy. They're going to do the same thing when you put them into the refinery. Data sets are not like that. And because that's the case, you're exactly right. For companies that are not particularly large, the question they should ask themselves is not, do we have more data than anybody else? They should ask themselves, do we have a data set which no one else possesses? A data set that's unique to us and what unique value can we create from it? That really is the essence of data strategy. I like that. Do you have another example you can share with us? One more use case? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, so there's there's a fascinating company uh, uh, in Germany, a startup called Retraced, and they are a supply chain verification company. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, what that means is that they're, they're providing a service it's built on blockchain that allows brands and retailers to provide documentation that their products were ethically and sustainably sourced. So a supplier, for example, um, you know, say a, a, a clothing factory somewhere in Cambodia, which claims to provide a, a sustainable wage, you know, a living wage, they can provide wage contracts, uh, which are then kept on a blockchain. And so uh, this provides this immutable ledger of, okay, well, here I am at the store, interested in this shirt can scan the code and then find out how was this thing made? Where was it made? By whom was it made? Is there evidence that there is, you know, the, these fair trade practices across the entire supply chain? And, and, you know, you can kind of see like, okay, so, so for some brands, it's obvious what kind of brand equity they could build up by, you know, demonstrating these, uh, the, this commitment to these kinds of practices. But one of the things that Retraced has found is that the suppliers see this value as well. 
So that the, the suppliers are starting to say, oh, we can actually differentiate ourselves by providing this documentation, which is then valued further down the chain. And the thing that's really interesting about this one is that this is a, an example of what Michael Porter at Harvard Business School calls shared value. And so for a while, you know, Michael Porter is the godfather of competitive strategy. He wrote the book on it. And he has talked for, for many years now about the need for kind of a, a, a different portioning of, of value through a supply chain so that manufacturers, for example, uh, in low wage countries uh, can actually get a bigger slice of the pie that is created by the purchases in high wage countries. And this turns out to be a really data intensive problem. And here is a really interesting data intensive solution. Nice, nice. That's a really cool example. Really cool. We're running out of time, guys. Pete, any more questions before we No, wrap I'm it good. Up? This has been a fascinating discussion. Thanks, Paul, so much for spending some time with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been so nice. Thanks for teaching us about this. It has absolutely been a pleasure. 